Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Uh, I have a treat for you. Uh, the truth is, I don't have time to give a original rendering tonight on uh, yard sites. A lot of, uh, well, actually there aren't so many to talk about, but I'm going to cut through all that and tell you I have a paper here I gave in school and college about a year ago at a conference we had about Hamrams, people from around the world. And uh, this one has to do with what they call the Get of Vienna, you probably never heard of. It's very famous, but like a lot of halachic issues, they're famous. Nobody ever heard of it. And not to get of Cleves, how to get me vino. And uh, it involves someone whose yard site is coming up in a few days. That's the Maram. I'm talking to Maram Lublin, and that's the Maram in the back of the Gemara underneath the Marshal for you yeshiva types. Um, here we're dealing with a rabbi from the uh, golden age of Jewish Poland. Mamish in the middle of it. Uh, I spoke about this about the Kleoker lived at that time when the Jews had it good in Poland way back in the 15 and early 1600s but I'm going to skip all that and cut right to my talks I'm going to be reading you from a paper I delivered and as I said it was a, it was a conference on the different types of cherim out there so that's what I emphasize over here and you'll see how the Maram whose yard said is coming up very soon the mayor Ben Gedali of Lublin probably not the main thing to you but he's a f- famous person um, how he plays a very important role in this. Um, here we go. A, the story takes place in 1611. A marriage was entered into by two young teenagers from wealthy families, which was a common practice, Yitzchak Walfish of Lvov and Batsheva Bas Feibish of Prague and Vienna. The couple apparently lived with the bride's family in Vienna. At the age of 16, this is the summer of 1611, Yitzchak became ill, and they feared he might die. That's the young husband. Since the young husband, the couple didn't have any kids, the wife would become a Yavama, a childless widow who could not remarry until she obtained the necessary release, the chalitza, from a brother of the dead husband. Said brother might not issue such a release, leaving Batsheva and Aguna. Ordinarily, in pre-modern, traditional Ashkenazic middle-class circles, at the time of a wedding... The brothers of a groom would hand the bride a shtar chalitza, a document committing themselves, under penalty of cherem, to release the new wife without making any difficulties should such tragic circumstances occur. But for whatever reason, no such shtar chalitza had been written at the time of this young couple's wedding. Accordingly, Batsheva's family went into a panic, determined to forestall Batsheva's becoming a possible agunah. Being a wealthy, elite family... They approached a family friend in Vienna, a prominent visiting rabbi, who happened to be from Lvov, although he wasn't the chief rabbi there, the Abbasin, to try to secure a get from the deathly ill young husband, because as a divorcee, Batsheb would be free to remarry without having to undergo chalitza. This rabbi, Yeshua Falcone, was a prominent person indeed. 
He was a wealthy and highly regarded Rosh Hashiva in Lvov and a leading rabbinic presence on Devadar Baratzes. Rabbi Kohn was particularly famous as an expert in halacha. After his death, Rabbi Kohn's commentaries on the Torah Shulchan Aruch, particularly his seminal commentary on Chosha Mishpat, would enshrine him in the rabbinic pantheon as the Sma and the Prishadrisha. It clearly seemed to Bachema's family that if a divorce was executed under the supervision of one of the leading rabbinic experts of the day, the validity of the divorce would be unassailable. The situation of an extremely ill husband divorcing a beloved wife to spare her agona problems is well known in the Talmud as Get Shchimerah. Get Shchimerah. It's a subject beloved by Talmudist keen-witted Talmudists down the centuries for the complex halachic issues it raises, like exactly when does the divorce go into effect, immediately before the death, from the moment the divorce was written, was it retroactive? How would retroactive, act, how would retroactivity work with a dead person? Among the central questions raised in the Talmud and its literature was whether such a get was to be considered conditional. Unlike the usual situation, where a husband divorces his wife because of negative feelings, in the case of the get shchimra, the assumption is he's divorcing her because of his affectionate desire to spare her potential aguna problems after his death. So is the document being executed a conditional document? In other words, what if he doesn't die? What if he recovers? Are they divorced? Or was it taken for granted that if he didn't die, he never meant for the divorce to take effect? In the Talmud, there are legal arguments on both sides of the question, and a set of verbal formulas was suggested whereby the sick husband could stipulate that the divorce was not effective if he recovered. The problem is, the verbal formulas were quite, quite complicated, and no consensus could be reached by the medieval rabbis over the legal effectiveness of some of these formulas. The result was socially undesirable. A sick husband may have issued a divorce that he regarded as conditional, but which his wife may regard as unconditional. In this case, we're not dealing with such an affectionate couple after all. <laughs> Imagine such a woman who now wishes to remarry. Some rabbis say she may. Others say she may not. And that if she does, her children are moms there. It was such considerations that led influential Ashkenazic rabbis, one in the 13th century, Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, to institute a practice in his basin, in his court, that a sick husband would not stipulate anything. He would divorce his wife, period, without any encumbering language. That way, there could be no questioning her status as no longer married to her husband. What about the husband's concern that if he recovers, she may not wish to remarry him? To address this concern, Rabbi Achil of Paris required that the couple, the wife really, should solemnly promise to remarry, to commit herself to remarry her former husband once he recovers. In this commitment ceremony, the wife formally declared that if she refused to remarry him, she would be subject to the cherem hakehilos, to be public, publicly stigmatized as an evil person in violation of Ashkenazic degrees, decrees prohibiting going back on one's promise to marry. This is stuff from a thousand years ago. Being in cherem was presumably highly undesirable, so it's assumed she would rather remarry her husband than be in that state. Now, my friends, this is really nothing new in Ashkenaz, or in Europe for that matter. 
the Catholic Church, back in the 4th century, at the Council of Elvira, enacted a kind of harem of its own for young men who promised to marry a girl and then reneged. Already in the 11th century, Ashkenazic Jews were recorded as doing the same thing. So when Rabbi Chil of Paris tailored his sanctions to fit the Gevchimera scenario, he was merely adjusting an existing cultural legal template. The directive of Rabbi of Paris was recorded in the Sefer Mordechai, which is in the back of the Gemara, a halachic work of the 13th century that was very influential in Ashkenazic Jewry. The directive was included in the Shulchan Aruch by the Ramah, in the section dealing with the laws concerning Geshchimra. And although the Shulchan Aruch was by no means a universally accepted law code in 1611, but it was there. On the other hand, Rabbi Shul Falcon, who presided over the execution of the Get, was a leading Talmud of the Ramah himself, and instrumental in uh, the code of the Ramah attaining authoritative status among 17th century Jewry. He wrote the commentaries that made the Ramah, uh, you know, the, the final word in Chosha uh, Mishpat. I'm talking about the Saman, things like that. Okay, now what all this means is that Rabbi Cohn approached a 16-year-old husband, Yitzhak Wolfish, persuaded him to give his wife Bathsheba get without stipulating any conditions as per the practice of Rabbi Chil of Paris. The young husband was assured by the rabbi and the relatives that he would not suffer by the transaction, and that once the divorce was executed, she, or her representatives anyway, would sign a document promising to remarry Yitzhak if he recovers, and that if she reneged, she would be subject to a cherem hakihilos and publicly stigmatized as such in the synagogues. The sick husband agreed. Two documents were executed in a public ceremony in which Team Yitzhak and Team Bathsheba committed to remarry within a month of Yitzhak's recovery if he recovered. A point of contention later was the exact language of the documents, whether or not the specific harem, the term harem was, was omitted. The uh, document simply stating that if she reneged, she would pay Yitzhak a penalty payment of 2,000 zehuvim, a lot of money. On the other hand, the document did state that as a divorcee, she was entitled to her ksuba, which was 4,600 zehuvim. In other words, She's in, she gets from him double what, what, what she promised to give him. Um, in other words, if Yitzhak demanded 2000 for her for non-fulfillment, she could hit him for 4600 It certainly did seem that the deathly ill 16-year-old husband from Lvov, alone, friendless, and lawyerless in his wife's community in Vienna, had been snookered. His wife was gone, and he had no legal way of getting her back, despite the solemn assurances that had been made to him at the time he agreed to the divorce. Now, if Yitzhak had succumbed to his illness, if he would have died, none of this would have mattered. As it turned out, Yitzhak had the bad taste to fully recover, whereupon he found himself without a wife, contrary to what he had been assured. Of course, he also discovered that his wife was de facto not subject to any penalty for non-fulfillment. True, there had been a cherem, but a close reading... See, they did the lawyer stuff. Revealed that it had been coached in unclear, couched in unclear terms that could be disputed. And there was no financial penalty for Bathsheba because her ksuba was double any penalty payment she owed him for non-fulfillment. So in other words, like I said before, you want to hit me for money? I hit you for double. As if to make matters worse, Yitzhak, the husband, who at that point very much wanted to remarry Bathsheba, was told that if he wanted to, 
he must start anew and write to Noim, financial gifts and commitments to Batsheva and her family. Without going through all the sordid details, the 16-year-old Yitzhak signed away his bank account and as much real estate in Lvov that was in his name, all in exchange for a promise by Batsheva to, to marry him. After he signed everything away, she went and got engaged to another man. When Yitzhak protested, he was advised that if Batsheva hit him with the ksuba, he would owe her a couple thousand. On the other hand, if he now signed a document waiving all claims, marital as well as financial, against Batsheva, she would sign a waiver of all claims against Yitzhak. Both parties, unencumbered, would move on, though Yitzhak would now be broke. Well, not exactly. In return for signing his waiver, he would get a thousand zehuvim, a thousand gulden. Yitzhak agreed and signed, and the matter seemed ended, the young man having learned, presumably, some valuable lessons about life. Or so, Batsheva's family naively thought. Why naive? Although the get was executed in Vienna, it really was a Lvov affair, an episode in the long-running feud between two factions in Lvov. Lvov or Lemberg was one of the leading Jewish communities in the Polish Commonwealth. Lvov contained three large, independent, and well-heeled yeshivas, each headed by a famous scholar. I told you, this is back in the Golden Age of Poland. One yeshiva was headed by Rabbi Yeshua Kohn, a cousin and student of the Ramah, who had married one of the richest girls in Lvov. Rabbi Kohn's father-in-law single-handedly bankrolled a large yeshiva that was directed by Rabbi Kohn for decades. Rabbi Kohn proudly mentions this fact in his published works. Indeed, the projected name for his monumental commentary on the Torah and Shulchan Aruch was Beis Yisrael because his father was a Yisrael idols. Kohn was therefore a wealthy Rosh Hashiva and a leading member of Vada Baratzos. At the time of the Get controversy, Rabbi Kohn had headed his yeshiva for more than 20 years. Now, back in 1595, remember the Get took place in 1611. In 1595, five years after Rabbi Kohn moved to Lvov and set up his yeshiva, Another big scholar moved to Lvov and founded another, competing yeshiva. Sound familiar? This yeshiva was financed not by a father-in-law, but by a brother-in-law. The brother-in-law was Avraham Wolfish. Ah, none other than the father of the 16-year-old husband in our story. The scholar who headed the yeshiva was the Maram Lublin, or Mergit Ben Gedalia, who was a world-class posek, one of the leading response writers of his day, he had childless, if you read his childless and two was against child from all over Europe, he had childless from Turkey and the Middle East. He was also a charismatic Rosh Hashiva with many famous students, and his notes on the Gemara are printed in the back of most Gemaras. In addition to all that, Rabbi Meir was notorious for being a difficult, quarrelsome, and combative person. He engaged in, that's whose yard set we're coming up, he engaged in numerous scholarly disputes and hurled insults at his colleagues right and left. My favorite one is when, in his tubas, he, he gets a shiloh from Metz, and, uh, you know, he, he gives an answer. By the way, a Mekel answer. And the other rabbi said, well, I don't know. And he said, you challenge me? I want to read you what he writes in his tubas. I was going to expose you publicly as a poor scholar. And I was going to have you defrocked as a rabbi. I don't know how you do that. Poba based Knesset the Kaklublin, Basifas Abaratzis. Knows I was going to have you publicly busted. This is what he writes, Sister Marm Lublin. Achazarti Machshaptizos, but I changed my mind. Listen to this. Pen Yulola covered, Sheish Kamoni, Yetapel Beshuffle Kamohu. 
But for a guy like you to be put in harem by somebody like me is a covet for you. You're such a puchas and a garnish and a nothing, and I'm such a big deal that to to go around like that famous story where the guy, you know, the Rashulk has that letter, get out of here, sign covet sky, you know. So uh, for you to be put down by me is a, is a covet for you, which which is uh, shows you what a strong temper uh, Demarum Lublin had. Anyway, I'm going to continue with my article. So he engaged in numerous quarrels. The reason a mayor came to Lvov was he was kicked out of Lublin because he engaged with bitter quarrels there with the head of another yeshiva there, Reb Shimon Wolf Arbach. There are many stories along his line, but I'll skip them now. So in 1611, Lvov contained at least two large yeshivas, large yeshivas, which were financially independent, renowned, headed by two renowned halachists, one of whom, Rameer ben Gedalia, did not respect the other, Rabbi Shua Kohn. So you have two competing yeshivas, probably, if I know Europe, a block or two away, and one's the Sma, and one is the Marm Lublin. Oh boy, oh boy. Anyway, that's how they did in those days. Now, um, so you see, there was also a third well-known yeshiva in Lvov that had been headed for decades by a third famous rabbi, Rabbi Noch Handel ben Shmarya. Again, um, a renowned scholar and important member of the Vada Baratzas. This is what you call Chachmas Manoach, also famous uh, sefer. We do not know whether Marm Lublin had a good or bad relationship with Rabbi Noach. We do know he had a bad relationship with the Sma. One surmises that the Marm Lublin would not have gone along uh, gotten along with a competing Rosh Hashiva, but I have not been able to ascertain this. Just to flesh out a perfect storm, about a year before this divorce, that was the year before 1611, Rabbi Noach left Lvov to become the chief rabbi of another city. What city was that? Vienna. <laughs> and Rabbi Noach was present when the Sma wrote the get for the 16-year-old husband, supervised the get. So you see that when the controversy exploded, it did take place in Vienna, but it really involved three great rabbis from Lvov, all three preeminent figures, with one of them vituperatively but substanti- mm-hmm. substantively attacking the other two. Well, not the other two, the other one. You see, the Chachmas Menoch died uh, like, uh, very shortly after the divorce. So we now begin to discern a clear picture of the facts. Husband and wife were the teenage children of two very rich Lvov families. In the case of the young wife, her family was, st- was actually a mercantile Prague family from Prague, which conducted business and owned property in Lvov as well as elsewhere. They seem to have resided in Lvov as well as in Prague and Vienna. Rabbi Yeshua Kohn's son, the son of the Sma, later married the sister Bacheva. So the 16-year-old husband was a nephew of the Marm Lublin, and the family of the wife was in very, very close terms with the Sma. <laughs> so it's not just, you know, uh, an objective situation. Since the male relative of the Marm Lublin, that's our young 16-year-old husband, had been wronged by a conspiracy, as he saw it anyway, involving collusion between Bacheva's family and their friend Rabbi Kohn, Rameir flew into a rage to Marm Lublin, and by word and writing denounced the entire affair as sordid and corrupt. Most importantly, he denounced the get as invalid. The Marm Lublin asserted that Bacheb was still married to Yitzhak, with all the consequences that flowed from that. Presumably, if there were to be any new negotiations between Bacheva's family and Yitzhak, Rameir himself would participate and see to it that Yitzhak was uh, not taken advantage of. 
By the way, I'm being mild over here. If you look at Marin Blumen, he said they tried to poison the, 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 the girls around, tried to poison the husbands, really something. Now, charges of corruption and unethical behavior were just words. And coming from somebody like a mayor of Lublin, who was known for vituperative denunciations of others, were probably taken as rhetorical. On the other hand, declaring a get to be invalid was a serious matter indeed, one that cannot be ignored. So this, what I'm describing you now, reading to you, is called the Haget Mivina, the controversy about the get from Vienna. Halachic culture has always regarded the status of a nation's ish as most consequential, not easily altered. Even if it's a suffix, even if there's doubt cast upon the validity get, so the woman's a suffocatious ish, and she may not remarry until her status is clarified, which usually means you need another get, just to make sure. If a great rabbi like Maram Lublin challenged the validity of a get, and if other important scholars would agree with Maram Lublin, and some did, then he would have won de facto, deek follow, because then she couldn't get married without a second get, and, and, and then they start the negotiations for money all over again, which would reverse the balance of power in favor of Yitzhak, the 16-year-old husband. So the main issue was whether or not the get was not valid. Why should it not be valid? Rabbi Kohn followed proper procedure. Perhaps Bacheva's relatives had taken advantage of Yitzhak, perhaps not. What does that have to do with the legal question what the get was called, whether the get was valid? To make such an argument was not easy and would require a lot of fine reasoning and perhaps strained argumentation. But Maram Lublin was the man to do it. A foremost scholar in both law and theory, he composed a very long chuva in which he built a case as paragraph after paragraph that Bachev was not divorced from Yitzhak. Essentially, he presented every possible argument for the get's validity and demolished them one by one. Although densely intellectual, the chuva is not boring because it's thoroughly interspersed with disparaging ad hominem remarks. You never fall asleep reading a chuva from the Maram Lublin. Obviously, this is not the place to rehearse all the arguments. Remember, I gave this, it's also not in a podcast. I'll just present the basic arguments and then the ones that specifically relate to the cherem, relate to the cherem. On the face of it, the execution of the get was performed in accordance with the instructions of Rechila Paris. The young husband was told to agree to divorce his wife and to hinder the get unconditionally, and they said, Altidag, don't worry, this won't hurt you. You won't suffer from this. Obviously, they said in Yiddish. The husband did so. It is important to note that Batsheva herself, under advice of astute counsel, said nothing during the entire affair. Negotiations on her behalf were conducted by her mother. As for the husband's wish that Batsheva stay with him if he recovered, this was stated in a separate document that Batsheva's family signed, where they promised, mind you, they promised that she would remarry him if she recovered and they agreed to penalties for non-compliance. The silence on Bacheva's part indicates she was the beneficiary of sound legal advice, probably from the wise and astute Sma, Rishul Khan. There are cases in the Talmud where a dying, sobbing husband was tearfully assured by his wife, that he's, whom he's divorcing, to save her from becoming an aguna, and the wife says, Amaikam isnachas, ikamis didana. You know, what are you worried about? If you get better, here I am. I'll, I'll remarry you. There's a whole discussion in the morning. Those who know Gittin know this. The discussion whether these words of the husband constitute a commitment or condition of divorce, or not. Maybe she's just saying it. In the case of Vienna, Batsheva had said nothing. On the other hand, Batsheva did silently perform a Kenyan Sutter, where she raised a handkerchief 
in a well-known ceremony of commitment, and she did so substitute a cherem of kehilas, if she didn't carry her promise. Now Rabbi Kohn argued that since the get was unconditional, whatever else happened between the couple or between the parties was not relevant to the validity of the get. She's divorced, period. The money fights is a separate issue. The whole point of following the procedure of Rabbi Paris was to validate the get and consign everything else to lawsuits and basin. In court, it could be decided who was entitled to what property, whether or not Bashev was in violation of Kham Kills and things like that. If she lost there, she would have to make amends by financially or by penance or whatever was required to have the harem lifted. But she would not still be married to Yitzhak. That's my point. In fact, Bacheva had already married or was engaged to another man, as I told you before. That's one side. By contrast, the Maharam Lublin argued that in the case of a get Shechimerah, the divorce is only meant to take place if the husband dies of his illness. The point of this type of get was it was to take place retroactively so that the wife was a divorcee, but not a widow. As a divorcee, she was spared the agona problems associated with Yim Chalitza. But the divorce was never meant, he said, to take effect if the husband recovered. Now this is a chiddush. It's a, lo- a novel legal theory. It seems it had never been tested before until this controversy of the Vienna get. At least there's no record of such a case which highlighted such a legal theory in previous halachic literature. The ordinary understanding of get shechimrah it's a full get. But a mayor of Lublin, Keen Talmudus, made a full brief, laying out the case for his interpretation. In addition, he argued that the particular case, the husband had been, in this case, the husband had been solemnly promised by Bathsheba's family that she would remarry him, and Bathsheba herself had committed to do so with a cherem, and so the cherem was, in his opinion, to strengthen and not replace the husband's assurance that he would not lose his wife. To strengthen it. In other words, he held his there. For his part, the Sma Rabbi Kohn, an equally, equally preeminent Talmudist, argued the other side of the law in a long tube of his own. More importantly, Rabbi Kohn challenged Rabbi Meir's version of the facts. Rabbi Kohn's version has Bathsheba's side behaving in an entirely honorable and ethical manner, with the husband initiating the ultimate waiver of the cherem. The arguments are many, long, and detailed. I only want to call attention to the role Cherem plays in this story. Remember, this was at a conference. One of the arguments advanced on behalf of the wife went like this. Yes, she promised under Cherem that she would remarry him, but all that means is that if she didn't, she'll be subject to being under a Cherem, a Cherem Kehillus. Very well, she was willing to live under the stigma, but it didn't mean she's not divorced. She was a, a divorcee, and subject to Cherem big deal. There's nothing to do with her status as being free of her husband. Rabmir strenuously objected to this, as we've seen and said a cherem was not understood in that way. Rather, it's a way of assuring that she that he would not, under any circumstances, divorce her in a way that resulted in there being a divorce if he recovered. What we have over here is an argument over valence, the power of cherem is in actual practice. The lawyers of Acheva are arguing that the cherem is serious, but not so serious that its violation was so unthinkable that it's another way of saying that if the husband recovered, she never intended to be divorced from him, regardless of his statement that the get was unconditional. Rather, a cherem is a promise, that's all. Non-fulfillment of a solemn promise is not model behavior. It's not the end of the world either. Like Donald Trump declaring Chapter 11 or instructing his attorneys to settle a suit, and you pay a penalty, and you pay the penalty, you move on to the next venture. A cherem, you know, is in the sense used over here, and the promise commitment is something serious, but not the end of the world. Okay? Um, I just drew in historically. I think we're hearing you the echoes of a class discourse, the discourse of an elite class 
you know, the harem can be undone. It's not permanent. I mean, if you're rich and powerful, you can get out of it. You know what I mean? It's not like the killer Vienna, Lvov, or Prague, anywhere else is going to ostracize them or really take the richest family in town and put them in harem. I mean, you know, not really. You know, not in Baltimore or anywhere else. No individual community went ahead and pronounced anything against her family, Lamaisa. Although the stigma was real, her family, by astute maneuvering, was able to get Yitzhak to waive all of his uh, claims, right? And didn't we see that in, 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 um, in the end? So there was no harm to worry about because the story, as I told you, was he signed away everything in the end. Now, not every family was so rich and powerful they could get the legal advice of the SMA, Mr. Chesha Mishpat, to extricate them from a harem entanglement. But the wealthy family of Bathsheba could. As is true at all times, those who have access to top legal counsel are somewhat more equal in the law courts and in the Bate Din, I'm sorry to say. Perhaps not. As I indicated, the Maram Luma was no slouch, and he was second to none in his legal astuteness. His long chew is brief, as forcefully argued, and his astute strategy seemed to be to raise enough dust to dirty the get. You see, as I indicated... In halakha culture, even if there's a suffix about to get it, doubt, that's enough to make the courts and the post come nervous and get them to say, she needs to know the get just to be sure. Obviously, in a case like ours, this would either mean Bathsheba's remarriage to Yitzhak, despite her engagement to another guy, or a renegotiation, my friends, of the financial terms in a manner more suitable to the chasen side. As it happened, when the vituperative responsum, the tshuva of Marm Lubin, came out and circulated, the family of the Kala and Rabbi Kohn solicited shubas of their own from leading rabbinic scholars that would support their side, and hence we have the controversy of the Get Me Vino. The first rabbi they approached was the famous 81-year-old Levush, a Mordechai Yafi Posen, the senior Talmud Chacham in Poland. To their shock, the Levush sided with the Maram Lublin and said she's not divorced. Now, to have two senior scholars argue that she was not divorced and the Levush wasn't considered, you know, a, a wild person, as Maram Lublin was. This did not help the Basheva side. Subsequently, the Sma was able to secure numerous Chubas supporting his side and confirming that Basheva was indeed divorced. These Chubas, from people like the Bach, the Marshah, the Masas Ben Yaman, became classics of the response literature and assured that in terms of a logic theory, the opinion of the Sma would become the consensus opinion in later halachic literature and practice. The Vadabrarotis, the main body in Poland, in 1611, that year, and the following year, declared for the Sma. They said Bachev was divorced. Mayor Demarm Lubin was publicly censured. See that? Publicly censured. When he returned to Lvov, he was the object of hatred by the students of the, of the Sma's Yeshiva, who within a year had him kicked out of town. He ended his days in 1616, five years later, in Lublin, for where he had been driven out a quarter century earlier. Rameyer's arguments would be rejected by most, but not all. Most significantly for our conference today, Rabiona Navon of Yushalayim, that's the Get Pushed, I think, concluded if a harem was involved, then indeed the wife would be married if the husband recovered. If a kanas was involved, then the wife would be divorced just subject to a penalty. So notice he, he said, harem, that language is very strong. Clearly, for this Friday dying in the 18th century, a harem was sufficiently severe to be accorded the greatest weight. That's in the Get Mekusher. That's the safer. What this suggests in more sweet... I'll skip all that. So anyway, here, my friends, I've gone long enough. Who won? You know, in history, you want to know who won. And the answer is the Marm Lublin. As Rabbi Kohn grudgingly conceded, 
the arguments in Amaram, Lublin, and others carried sufficient weight to make a suffolk hover over the divorce. In order to spare his daughter any taint that her second marriage may have been adulterous and that her grandchildren, children, grandchildren, might possibly, possibly, possibly have been tainted with Mamzerus, Batsheva's father secured a second get from Yitzhak, and you could be doggone sure, my friends. This time, the Chassan was accompanied by his uncle, Amaram Lublin, to ensure the property and interests of the 16-year-old boy were protected. Although Rabbi Kohn was at pains to stress that he and not Rameir was in the right, in practical terms, the attempt to gain unilateral advantage by one elite family over another was not successful. The two families were too well lawyered for that to happen. So in the end, each side could claim victory. One victory in principle, the other principle with interest. Okay? So, um, there's more to this. I'll, I'll, I'll just finish it off. What role had the Cherem played in this outcome? Not much. At the end of the day, even if Batsheba had been deemed in violation of her Cherem commitments, it would not have induced their family to renegotiate the terms of the financial agreement they had wheedled out of Yitzhak. At the most, it was an improper thing to do. In the words of one of the leading rabbis who sided with Batsheba, meaning even somebody said on her side, she said, this is from the Masas bin Yaman, a famous post. He said, I side with you, but you didn't do right. Haget get gomer vegerushin gemurim. Himu teres achol adam heim yuamus yichya. El she'ein nochun lasas kain. And the achem b'kos. I don't like what you did. In other words, ethically, it wasn't the way you handled with this chosen. Kam sheres yisrael lo yasa avol lo yidaber chosen imotzi loshen tarmis. The, the pasuk says that klal yisrael, a from Jew, doesn't act in an unethical manner. Ve'ein lecha avolus ramos gadol mizebefim. So that's somebody who sided with the kala said that, okay? Now, unethical, yes. Illegal, no. And when it came to money and real estate, ethical considerations didn't seem to have prevailed. The Marm Lublin, my friends, understood this, so he did not pin his case on a violation of her harem commitment per se. The stigma of being a violation of a harem commitment would not have induced her family to negotiate. So the Marm Lublin, great Tom Chochem that he was, ingeniously endeavored to connect the violation of, to the validity of the get. He was vociferously criticized to his face, we're told, by the leading Rabbonim at consecutive executive sessions of the Vada Baratzas for making this argument. They all screamed at him, and he just stood there, right? So, I wish they had a movie for this, you know? He's just sitting there and taking it, say, Rabbi Meir stubbornly held his ground and thereby won his case. Even if, in theory, his interpretation of the Cherem that was part of the divorce procedure of Yechila Paris, was rejected by subsequent authorities. So, to use plain and simple English, I'll skip to the, uh, to the end. Uh, what, what, the bottom line is who won? And uh, Mayor won, because uh, it was, it's about money. That was what's going on over here. She got to get in the end, but she tried to take away all of his money, and she succeeded in the beginning. But they didn't know that he's like an uncle or something like this, his nephew of the Marm Lublin, and it pays to have a gadol on your side if you ever get involved in a Choshul Mishpah case. It's a little bit of a complicated case, but if you could follow what I uh, said to you tonight, you have quite a story and you know to get a Vienna better than many other people out there. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com